to all of our listeners, welcome to the Interim Whisperer. This show is all about the future of work. We are going to be sharing, I am sharing the employer tip of the week, and it is surprising that new graduates may not know that they should use reply all on emails. They're in college. They don't know this stuff, people. So you as the employer have to go back and tell them, Okay, so let's talk about reply and reply all and CC and BCC, because honestly, if you're looking at interns, they don't know this stuff. And if you think hard, you didn't know this stuff either, and somebody had to teach it to you. So just remember that, that we don't get through anything in life. We need each other. We're built for relationship, and that's the bottom line. So today's guest is Jay Notes with Working Nation. little fanfare. Yay, Jay. <laughs> Thank you, Isabel. I'm so happy to be here. I am so happy to have you. I'm not kidding. I watched that video with Greta. I like looked all over, you know, and read a lot of stuff about you. I went, Ooh, this is a woman to know. (laughs) And I went, I want her as my mentor. I'm just saying that publicly. I know you're in demand. (laughs) You're popular for sure. Okay. So such a lovely compliment. Thank you. You are just delightful. And you were really like listening to me before we even got on the air. So thank you so much for that too. I appreciate it. So tell us about yourself with only five words and why those five words? Five words, Uh, education and workforce policy geek. Okay. Those are five words. Why those five words? I mean, they're kind of self-explanatory, but let's define it. So our listeners know. So I started out as a teacher, both uh, uh, for a long time in K-12, a special ed teacher, by the way, and then moved into a university level doing research on K-12 education and teachers. And because research is funded by the federal government, I came in contact with uh, U.S. senators, and I was invited to come down and work on the health committee. Uh, So I got to not only think about policy, but got to actually write legislation, which was really fun. And from there went on to positions in both the federal and state government uh, to implement some of those policies. So it's been uh, a great ride. And now as president of Working Nation, I don't have to do anything except look for exceptional programs. And then the talented team at Working Nation tells their stories on video, in journalistic articles, or we have live events. So uh, it's the best of all my jobs because I get to look at, at everything that's out there, look at what I think is really working. And I define working as getting people into quality jobs Mm -hmm. and you know just sit back and enjoy uh the amazing solutions i will tell you i don't know if you know this but you and i are similar i used to be a public classroom teacher also middle and high school i went and i started teaching in higher ed and i was an english major so you know writing is in there truth it's always about truth that's right yeah anyway i'm like loving it but I also appreciate it's a good thing for all those teachers out there to hear, Mm -hmm. Isabella, that, you know, it's not a straight line when you become a teacher. There's so many, you know, work and career opportunities. Yeah. And just about every teacher has a side gig. So they're always an entrepreneur. I always say they are. It's so true. They're either selling Pampered Chef or the makeup or whatever. They're doing something. That's right. I taught (laughs) Evelyn Wood speed reading. (gasps) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) That is, oh, that hasn't been around for a while. That is really- I know, it tells you how long ago I was in the classroom. Yeah, yeah. I remember that name and I did, didn't, wasn't there a stenography class or something like that with Evelyn Woods? Maybe not. I didn't, I didn't know stenography, but I did learn how to speed read and learned how to teach it. Oh my goodness. That would be a really great skill because people don't read now. You should be teaching that now. What is old comes back, right? That's right. Oh my goodness. Okay. So you shared a little bit about your educational background and the industry, but you know, let's hear a little bit more about that journey. You gave it a really short, short path, but I know it was, it has to be filled with really rich moments. So Um, where did you you go to school? I went to Boston college. Mm -hmm. I grew up in Philadelphia. I still have the accent. Uh, went to Boston, uh, then was lucky enough to get a teaching job right out of college in the Boston Public Schools. Like many, uh, my dad got sick and I had to come home. Uh, mm-hmm. So I came back to Philadelphia and was again, very fortunate uh, that I got a job 
rather quickly teaching in the Philadelphia public schools. I was at the beginning of special education. So there was a real demand like there is today, but even greater and uh, stayed in the classroom for 15 years was uh, working with the university on on some things that we were doing at the at the high school at the time and the director of research at the Temple University Center for Research uh, in early childhood and education and human development came to me and said, would you be interested in working with us on getting action research? Now, back then, what that meant was having practitioners actually involved, not just the subjects of the research, but actually involved in designing the research models. So it was it was an unbelievable opportunity. You know, I got to work with school districts, small and large, all over the country. Uh, you know, so it was great for me because I had never wor uh, worked or lived in rural America. Got to work with some fabulous rural schools, you know, that were just completely innovating on a shoestring and doing such a wonderful job meeting the needs of their students. So that led me, uh, you know, as I said before, most research at that point was funded by the Federal Department of Education. So there were a number of opportunities for me to come down to uh, give testimony, to answer questions, to beg for them to give more appropriations uh, to the research entities, NIH, NSF, then OERI, it's now uh, IES, uh, you know, which is the one in the Department of Education. But I think, you know, that that opportunity, many times you would say things now, this will tell you, you're a teacher, so you understand, but, but this is probably even before your time. When I started teaching, if you were in a Title I school, which was called Chapter One back then, mm -hmm. uh, you could only have the equipment that was paid for by the Title I, the Chapter One funds, used by kids who were eligible. So that meant if a kid didn't bring in their free and reduced price lunch application, you didn't know whether they were eligible and they couldn't use the you know computer when we got computers, but tape recorder, crayons, whatever you were using, they couldn't use it legally. Oh my goodness. And isn't that crazy? So, so I, I really lobbied hard. You know, what, what talked to members and on both sides of the aisle in both chambers and said, this is really making teachers work impossible. Saying to one kid, you can have the tape recorder and saying to another, you can't, you're not poor enough. So uh, that was the creation of uh, Title I schools where you had school-wide projects. So in all of those back and forth, my director who's uh, since uh, passed, Margaret Wong was an amazing woman and she, uh, you know, she gave me so much rope, I could have hung myself or in the case, I made lots of opportunities. So anyway, got picked up by the then ranking member of the health committee, uh, committee, Senator Edward Kennedy, and worked for him for 11 years on the health committee. Oh my so God. You can just imagine the, uh, you know, the experiences I had in terms of being right there, writing the legislation that, you know, funded amazing things like, you know, CHIP, even the, even though that wasn't an education thing, the children's healthcare bill got funded while I was there, written and funded, you know, all the Workforce Investment Act. I was the lead staff on the development of that in 97. So it was, it was an unbelievable time. And I, I have to say a time when government really worked well because you know the people that wrote that workforce investment were uh, act with me were people like Senator DeWine's staff who was the Republican from Ohio or Jim mm -hmm. Jeffords staff who was the Republican at that time from Vermont we all worked together mm -hmm. how was it being it, the woman though in that mix did you were you just one of the few or were you, were there more than just yourself? Because uh, at that time, I don't think that there was many women in government, at yeah, least the, at the level you were. Yeah. In, in terms of the member level, there were, when I started there in 96, I think there were only six women senators out wow. of a hundred, you know, but the staff, particularly the staff on education was much more uh, represented by women mm -hmm. and workforce a little less. But you know, uh, the senators rarely get so few, so few staff positions that people double up on things. So a lot of times the the female staff that did education had to start doing workforce. So it was it was really a pretty good mix. In fact, I I would think for most of my time there there were more women represented on the committee staff roles in education than there were men. 
Yeah, that's that's not surprising because women tend to gravitate to education as a career path. We're fully aware of that, right, as a gender. Right. And we see that more in the schools. But I've seen that there's, you know, been a little bit more, I'll call it diversity in the work, definitely in the um, middle and high school, more in the high schools. I don't know so much about in um, in the elementary schools. You know, I teach Sunday school on to three-year-olds. So I just haven't ever done elementary school formally, but I've worked across the spectrum, whether you're looking at early ed all the way up to adult learners. You know, it's gotta be something that when you were in there, you could see how you could make a huge difference across that whole generational learning process. Of, of education, period. Amazing. Well, you know, Isabel, you hear all this talk now about transferable skills, right? Mm -hmm. And I think too often, uh, particularly, um, well, I, I was going to say younger teachers, but I'll say teachers in general, mm -hmm. don't think they can do anything else. And I have to tell you, the skills that I learned as a teacher, both in pre-service, but definitely in term in terms of learning when I was in the classroom. You know, you had to be a good listener. You had to be a predictive listener. You know, in other words, you could tell by the tone of voice kids were using with each other, whether they were joking around or whether there was a fight coming up, you know, mm -hmm. whether there was something more serious. And you could tell, you know, when you looked even at kids, their facial expressions, their body motions, you know, that they were having a bad day or a good day. Those things, those kinds of intuitive people skills, teachers don't realize how, you know, honed in they are on those yeah. because that's good classroom management, right? You look and you, you, you get this sense of how the chemistry is between and among the people in your class. That really helped me more than anything else. All the book learning. I mean, I don't want to minimize the fact that I had to be a quick reader, that mm -hmm. I had to be able to analyze and, and synthesize. I had to do all of that as we were writing legislation. I had to have a good memory, right? I had yeah. to take good notes so that I remembered that we put something in somewhere so later I could go back and reference it. But I think the most important thing were the people skills. And I think teachers don't, they sell themselves short. You know, yep. they they believe the stupidity that says, you know, if you can't do it, you can at least teach. No, teaching no. is such a higher order thinking career. And uh, I think teachers really need to, I hope they stay in the classroom. I mean, as I said, I was there for 15 years. I really think that the longer you stay, the better you get at all these things. But you have to you have to remember that you are really, you know, world class at certain things and be able to look at industries that might be interested in those skills, which in my case, you know, turned out to be government. And those skills got me to really high levels in government. Mm. I agree with you totally because I was given, you know, they they put kids into social classes, we'll call it social classes, but it's really tracks. And it, I was given the at risk because they said, but you're really good at it. And I went, that's because nobody else wants them. And I'm the youngest teacher. So I have no seniority, but truth of the matter was I was really good with them. And I still am really good with them because they didn't have a lot of people that would actually have the patience and listen to them. So I always would get a lot of the at risk. And then I got the standard level kids and I went back and after I'd been teaching, it was like three years. I said, could, could I have some honors level? And they said, sure, you could have. It. So I got those. And even with that ability level, it was exhausting in a different way. So I taught for 11 years in the public classroom setting and middle school is night and day between like, you know, all of those. And you're right about having to bring innovation into it. I went to this work service. Um, it was every Wednesday we had to go to some type of a teacher's work service. And they talked about how to bring economics into the classroom. I was an English teacher. So what I did is I created play money, like monopoly money. And if, and I was teaching in the projects and I needed them to, and I, I needed them, not wanted them. I needed them to do things for me so that I could actually be able to have a successful class. So if they came into the classroom and they sat down before the bell rang, they got a dollar. If they, and it's play money. If they came with something to write on and something to write with, they got $2. 
if they did not touch anybody around them, because you know, those little bodies are going crazy. Oh yeah. He said, you cannot touch the desk. You can't push the desk. You can't like, you know, tap it on, you know, whatever with your feet, they got a dollar. If I needed to make sure they learned how to, you know, manage their own body. Right. If I would, it's up in the front of the room and I would often make mistakes on purpose when I was writing, because I wanted to see, are they engaged? I would, if you catch me making a mistake and you're correcting me respectfully, you get money. So at the end of every week, there was a, there was always a reward in the classroom constantly. And Friday was bank day. They would come in and they would turn their money in and they had a choice. They could either go to the treasure box, which I would, you do everything on zero budget. And I was getting like movie posters and travel posters and all kinds of stuff from the dollar store that they would just give me. And it was put in there and I had those giant cutouts, you know, from the movie thing. Kids were going, this is great. So they could either go for that or they were learning long to longitudinal um, savings because they could save it up and they could, if they had any grade that they didn't like, it wasn't changing an overall grade, but let's say there was an F. They could actually, I would say, you can go ahead, you can turn it in because you really worked hard and I'll change it to an A. So there was all types of rewards. They could take tests over as many times as they needed within one week to get a better grade. You get the idea. Yeah. Long story short, what was so funny is that they could also use this play money to buy a pass to be the first one on the bus, to be the first one in the lunch line, to have a pass to just walk around if they didn't disturb anybody in the classroom. And I, I was teaching in the project. So this is really hard for these kids. I'm not kidding. But what's amazing to me is that the play money got street value and people were buying it so they could have more. Wow. No kidding. Everybody's grades, and I'm not kidding, even my worst students' grades were improving and, and my tests were hard. They were hard on purpose, but I was actually able to see real learning taking place because there's, this was, it was a game to them and certainly it was, but it also, what I kept instilling in them is you are smarter than you think you are. Do not let anybody ever tell you differently. You guys can do anything you set your mind to. And now when interns work with me, I tell them, I want you to think like an Olympian. If I'm telling you I want something and you're going to tell me, oh, no, we can't do it. I'm going to tell you, is there, there's, I think, I believe, and I know. You tell me which one Olympian says, because you're going to go solve this problem. You're going to give it to me in the time frame I'm asking for with the quality that I'm asking. So go figure it out. And they come back and they do it. You know, it's just... It's just having somebody believe in you because yeah. a lot of times people grow up and it's not, it's not a question of gender or color or, you know, even socioeconomic status. Mm -hmm. There are kids everywhere and there are people everywhere who haven't had enough people who really believed in them. No, so you're doing so a great well. service. Well, that's when I was in the classroom. Now I carry it over to adults. I teach it to adults. So it's still relevant. What is Working Nation? Go ahead and tell us more about that organization uh, and the website, please. Well, it's workingnation.com, even though we're a nonprofit. Uh, but it, so we are a nonprofit media entity that's completely devoted to that connection between learning and going to work learning and getting a better job or getting your first job it's like it dcp yeah i mean it's yeah. it's it was founded by a guy who was very successful art bilger in the financial service industry he worked for all the giants and all of a sudden you know he he came up one day in his head and said uh we're headed for a real problem of structural unemployment mm -hmm. that long before the pandemic, Working Nation just celebrated its fifth year. And he spent two wow. years before we uh, went live actually talking to people and doing research. So he basically realized that skills were changing so quickly, mostly because of technology, yes. that schools really couldn't keep up. Mm -hmm. And people were staying longer in the workforce, people working well into their 60s and 70s, uh, those people that were blessed with the job that didn't require heavy physical labor. Right. I want to put that caveat out there. But people were 
staying in the workforce longer. And that was creating a slowdown of available jobs. At the same time, technology was automating a lot of jobs into you know, oblivion. So he said, what are we gonna do about this? It's no longer gonna be enough for 20, 30, 40% of the workforce to just have uh, a good work ethic and a willingness to go to work they're not gonna find jobs. There's not gonna be jobs for those people anymore. And many of the people, the college graduates that you talk about and talk to all the time, Isabella, they're not gonna be able to get the kinds of jobs other graduates 10 years before them got without doing something different. And he doesn't believe, and I think most people would agree with him, that we can wait for colleges to change. No. Because changing higher education you know, is really, difficult because yes. not because there's they're unwilling but because there are a significant number of people who were successful in the old model who don't see why it has to change mm -hmm. you know i mean those people who were valedictorians and salutatorians for the last 40 years thinks this think the system is working just fine thank you and those people that are you know business owners and ceos and executives and entrepreneurs in their own business their education worked fine for them. So mm -hmm. convincing them that there has to be a shift in how we educate people is very difficult. So yeah. uh, his thing is, don't wait, you know, take it on yourself and, and look at these great programs that exist that will help you in addition to your formal education. Mm -hmm. I agree. I, I don't know if it's possible to have him as a guest on the show, because that would be great, honestly. But I, this is my prediction, and I'm a higher ed person, you know, at the end of the day. It's going to be higher ed will be for those that need social, socialization, and it's going to be a privilege. I believe that colleges, as we know about it, are going to go away tremendously. It'll either all be online. Those that don't do it are going to be struggling. And then there's also going to be less schools because it's a, a large place to go with COVID and how people want flexibility. I believe that there's going to be, and it's already in the works now, you know, general assembly, you know, pick any of these companies that are out there that are accelerating that learning process. To be able to do that, you're going to have to be that, be very competitive and allow people to learn super, super fast to be able to get into that workplace. That mid-level person is what we're also needing. And we have to be able to accelerate that and how people learn, one of the best things I learned in my uh, PhD classes was people learn from storytelling, people learn from relationships. And it's really critical that we maintain that as the, as the new norm for education so that people can go to school. It's continuous, it's on demand, it's whenever they want. It's also built around relationships. They can go to school you know, and get it done in two years, not four. There's so many things that you can do in two years, not four, unless, you know, you're going to be a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher. I think teachers should always continue to have, you know, more education. I don't know what your thoughts are, but it's changing and we're seeing it now and education needs to like wake up to that. Yeah. I mean, look, I think I, I'm a little more positive about higher ed than you are. Mm. I think it's going to continue to exist forever. I think that there's always going to be elite schools, you know, the state mm -hmm. flagships and some of the privates and things like that are always, people are always going to want to go there to play sports, mm -hmm. uh, to be in the marching band, you know, whatever it is to be in sororities and fraternities. Mm -hmm. I mean, people, young people grow up with ideas of what they want, just like we did, you know, yeah. what you want in college. And I think that's going to be there. But I, I think your prediction that there will be fewer schools is definitely true. I think that, you know, if, if I were a 17 year old looking at college right now and not sure what I wanted to do, I would think twice about putting all of my money uh, into a four-year education. I think mm -hmm. if you have a good idea, you know, there are so many uh, occupations that require that four-year degree that for state licensing. You know, you mentioned doctors, lawyers, teachers, social workers, you know, all of them are state licensed and need mm -hmm. to have that minimum credential. Uh, so that they're going to continue to move in that path. But, you know, I think I would really, if I were looking at an alternative, you know, we don't have a lot of data 
you're a data person. You know, mm -hmm. we don't have a lot of data on these new modalities. I mean, places like Penn Foster and Pearson, Cengage, they've been around for decades. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Uh, Wiley, they've all been around. So we know those names. You mentioned General Assembly. You know, the boot camp model is about 10 years old. Mm -hmm. And we don't have much data on, yes, I can learn to code in Python and get a job probably to make $60,000, $70,000. I live in the DC area. So, you know, Ruby on Rails, Python, they're always in demand. Uh, front end and back end coders, you know, those are, those are in demand jobs. The question we don't know is, you know, as AI continues to uh, develop, are we still going to need coders at mm -hmm. the level we need them today? We've got and code that's building on itself, you know. Through, that's right. Yeah. So, you know, no code programming is now the thing too. And it's, well, yeah. it's been around for a little while. So, so will those people have enough of a wraparound education? You know, they got the best probably in terms of a narrow look in a 12 week boot camp, you know, to how to do Python. And they're experts at it. And they probably couldn't have gotten a better education in that anywhere. Mm -hmm. But when Python goes away, uh, you know, what happens to them? Do they have the ability to transition and to move into a different kind of job? Do they have other skills? Now, I think the way people are getting around this in the short term for right now is, is traditional colleges are partnering with people like to you where they don't build they don't build the boot camp but to you comes in and it's a plug-in model there are a number of them Cengage yeah. is doing a lot of that you know I mean Pearson's doing some of it there's there's a lot of stuff going on in that space right now that may be the wave of the future but what you want to make sure of when you're looking for any education is is it quality and how do you measure quality is it, is it transferable? So if I go to a small boot camp, you know, in Miami, mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden I get transferred to New York City, does anybody recognize the credential that I got at that right. single site boot thing. camp? Yeah. And, you know, these, these boot camps are $25,000 minimum and not eligible for Title IV. You know, so you can't use a Pell Grant there. You can't get a federal loan there. So you have to have the financial ability to get a personal loan or to have somebody pay for you. Yeah, they'll, they actually, yeah. Uh, you're talking right up the right alleys because where I've seen is like, there's Coursera, there's Udemy. They all, all have top tier schools, uh, professors teaching those courses. So yeah, you can get a certificate. You can always get a certificate. What people are asking for is how is that quantifiable? How how is that actually demonstrating a skill? So there needs to be a cognitive skill that's behind it, the neural learning that's really displaying, yes, I know JavaScript. How? Because I was able to use complex problem solving and critical thinking to be able to do this. And through assessments, we're going to be able as employer give get more and more assessments to be able to see how that's done. You were an educator. So I know you had to do this too. I would go when I'm applying for a job, they go, okay, come up here. You have five minutes, go teach us this. And you had to think super fast, right? You go, all right. So I'm going to teach you a five paragraph essay in five minutes. And they bring in, you know, like 10 other people that are all staff members. And they're all like, Rowan, truly, this happened to me. They're throwing stuff across the room. And I went, is this supposed to be higher ed? Because I'm thinking I'm in the projects again. But they were really wanting to see like, you know, is, do you get flustered? How do you handle what's going on in the classroom? And I went, are, are your students really like this? Because I'm a little concerned. I got the job. And they're not like that. But I just sat there and went, what the, what the heck are you running me through? Anyway, did you have to do assessments when you were going in for teaching positions? You know, I didn't. Um, in in uh, the Boston and Philadelphia public schools, you took a written assessment so that basically they knew you were literate. Mm. I had to have uh, pass a state test to do that. So in Florida, that's where I am. To, to get certified, I had to take a two-day test to demonstrate that I had those skills. I got, you know, my teaching certificate. I had to keep it up every year to make sure it was always, you know, on point with whatever the, you know, learning modules that were out there. I didn't have to necessarily worry about that in higher ed. It was only in 
the public school system that that was required. So in higher ed, that's what's surprising to me as I go, how are we not keeping our people relevant? Well, it was through publishing, you know, like articles, you had to be published in some journal and do, you know, whatever. That's if you're tenured, but if you bring in adjuncts, and there are people on, you know, that have work experience. I think that was the best advantage is that you could come in and connect the dots. Yeah, I think that's the problem. You know, kids accept that K-12 isn't always the most relevant, although I think career and technical education is becoming more and more popular because mm. it's so relevant. Mm. But when you go to post-secondary at the higher ed, you know, they don't feel the need. These Some of these professors are teaching exactly the same thing they taught 10 years ago. Yes. And, and not bringing in the real world relevance and application. And I think that's why what you're doing is so important. You know, I, I mean, look, I think colleges have a lot going on and I, I never want to bash them because they're doing so many things. You know, they're dealing with the whole student, especially residential colleges, you know, mm -hmm. dealing with the needs and try, knowing that students are balancing families oftentimes yes. and work and school and studying. So I, I mean, I, I never want to come across as saying, why aren't colleges doing more? But I really think that organizations like yours are so important because they, they don't have the time always to build relationships with local employers, particularly with smaller local employers. Mm -hmm. And we know the truth that small employers are the ones that are building yes. new jobs. They're yeah. adding jobs. Mm -hmm. The big employers, sadly, often are using that automation that I was talking about before and contracting. You know, mm -hmm. we still love them. Don't get me wrong. I, nobody doesn't want an employer that employs three or four or 5,000 people in their community. That's the bedrock of the community. But the part of the community are small employers mm -hmm. and those small employers where you really get a chance to talk to the owner you know i mean i don't know whether you looked at you know i told you i'm a nerd so the new jolts report came out this week and everybody's like oh screaming and yelling about you know the the great resignation and the mm -hmm. high number of quits and absolutely you know you, you, you watched the Greta Van Susteren tape, you know, I talked to her about that at length. I, I, I think mm -hmm. it's a lot of college students from 2020 and 2021, just getting it, writing it, you know, they're, they're basically, they were in short-term jobs and now they're getting into their career path. But mm -hmm. if mm -hmm. you look, it's really interesting this week, this week matches the September number. This is for no, the Jolts report for November. They're always delayed at least a month. And, uh, the, the, the quit rate was four and a half million, which is terrible. You know, like that's a lot of people quitting their job, but it was really interesting. The quit rate continues to go down for the smallest employers. Mm -hmm. So people who are with startups, people who are with, you know, entrepreneurs where they can actually interact with the, uh, the owner, the employer, the founder, whatever, the, the boss, they seem to be staying. They're not leaving at the same number in any industry as, as they are leaving mid-sized employers and larger employers. So I, I think it's really true that you know young people and not so young people really like being able to interact with people that can give them the relevance of what they're doing, whether it's mm -hmm. doing sheet metal, whether it's, you know, building a house or whether it's building a curriculum, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. I very much agree with you on that. The, the thing that I've seen is uh, 70, well, 70% 70 of the internships in the United States are, are unpaid and it's with the small business owner. They don't have that budget to be able to pay. So I saw that as a need in the market and went, how can I make that a better experience for the employer as well as the student student. So I designed the platform around the US Department of Labor's seven criteria for unpaid internships. I designed it around the National Association of College and Employers, you know, their competencies and just around good HR practices. I mean, when you do you care about your people, just like what you're saying, it makes a difference. When I go and I interview, I will tell you, I'm always amazed that people go, you know, they're young, they're 19, 20, 21. They go, I get to work with you. You're the CEO. And I went, yeah, but like, so <laughs> that just means I'm, you know, like, <laughs> there's not a lot of people in the company right now, but yeah, you know, I, I'm the one that's lucky. I get to work with you. That's how I look at it. You know, they think right. it's a big deal. 
anyway, um, I agree with you on so many levels of what you were just sharing there, because people are leaving, but they also want something different. They, they don't want to live in San Francisco anymore. They want to have a different type of, a, and that's millennials for sure. They're moving to other places and, you know, states in the United States so they can have a more of a balance in life. So if they can't get what they're looking for with their current employer, they're going to go look someplace else and live someplace else. And flexibility is what they're really looking for now more than anything. Hmm. How, well, okay. So you were appointed by president Obama, Obama, and you were able to work there in the white house as a, no, I actually didn't work in the white house. I worked, I was the assistant secretary for, at labor for employment and training. So uh, I, I ran ETA. Okay. So tell us about that because honestly, I think first off getting to meet a president and you've met two because you know, you've met, well, you mentioned the Kennedys. So I'm going, okay. I don't know president, but he was definitely a Senator. Wasn't it Robert? Yeah, I worked for Ted. Ted. Okay, so you know some really high level people, and I don't think it gets higher than the president of the United States. How awesome is that? And then you were also able to, I would think, make considerable change in our country. What was like the, the most powerful thing that you felt like you really left a difference in while you were with him? Well, um, you know, I had the amazing opportunity to work for Secretary Hilda Solis, who was uh, the first Latina uh, to be Secretary of Labor. And she was just amazing. She, uh, while President Obama is a rock star, there's no question about it, brilliant, humble, a real listener, wants to hear everybody's point of view in a meeting. He's, ama he's amazing, per he's an amazing person. But Secretary Solis was so willing to share you know, the spotlight, so willing to share uh, responsibilities, uh, the, you know, the, the kinds of things we were able to do, you know, just to give you a, a terrible example, today, there's 0.7 workers for every job. So almost a one-to-one -one ratio, jobs available to, to workers available. Hmm. When we were at labor in 20, uh, 2009, there were 11 workers for every job vacancy. Oh, wow. So if you think about what we had to do in terms of convincing people that it would not only be nice to get retrained, but they had to get retrained and they had to have a toolkit for every level of job that was much more involved than what they needed before the Great Recession. So going around and, and talking to people with the secretary, often many times with the president, was very, was, was so amazing for me because they were both wonderful people, people, wonderful speakers and really terrific listeners. So that was the personal great part. I mean, one of the things that we did that I think was ahead of its time was creating online tools. So while I was at ETA, the amazing career staff there developed uh, my next move, my skills, my future, my next move for veterans. So if you think about that, that was 2009. There's wow. the technology so much better now, but the fact that my career staff at that time was willing to be brave enough to undertake that task, to do you know job board scans, uh, scrolls so that you could see things that's searchable by it was we built it to be I didn't build it my cr amazing staff then built it uh it was searchable by zip code so you could take a, a test a simpler version of what you've been describing Isabella but take a test to see what your natural inclinations were what what were your interests what were your abilities and then it would match it to job titles and then by zip code tell you what what jobs that required those skills were available in your local area wow it, it was just it was amazing what we got done on not a lot of money i mean it was money it was expensive as, as you know to develop and more expensive then because the technology was was younger but the the fact that the staff at eta I will never, Pam Frugally was one of the most amazing people I ever met. And I want to tell people that she knew more about technology than anyone I met while I was in government or in the private sector. And she was in her fifties at the time. Wow. So this was a woman who was a 
self-taught person, had a, a PhD in probably economics, but really loved technology on the side and just became a pro at it. So those tools, uh, which still exist today, they've been improved, but still exist today. And we really revamped the American Job Center, named them, gave them that name, so that they would have name recognition across the country. So if you moved from you know, Northern Virginia to Florida, you would know that there was the same system funded by your tax dollars that would help you find a job when you were ready. Mm. I, I could listen to you talk. I could have a conversation with you for honestly a week and I would still be like the, the expression is thirsty because I went, oh my God, you're like so you're really in touch with what's going on, just not even on like the grounds root, you know, level, but also on a way higher spectrum of how the government works. I, I am envious of you. Okay, so I'm going to take a little break. I know we're even getting very close to the end of the show, but this is we're going to acknowledge our sponsor. So the Intern Whisperer is brought to you by Cat5 Studios, who help you create games and videos for your training and marketing needs that are out of this world. Visit Cat5 Studios for more information to learn how Cat5 Studios can help your business. Thank you, Cat5 Studios. And we're back to our show. So in the second half of the show, and we're going to be jumping around here a little bit, uh, what are your thoughts about peer and reverse mentoring? I usually have to explain this to people, but I'm pretty sure you already understand it because you're an educator. So what are your well, thoughts about it? I'm a huge proponent of mentoring. I've been a mentor myself, and I have been so blessed by mentors my whole life. I think that oftentimes we think mistakenly mm -hmm. that the only people who can mentor you are people who are either older than you or above you in the food chain, mm -hmm. your bosses. Uh, I think there is so much that can be learned. I, I'm a big proponent of intergenerational learning. Mm -hmm. I think that when you pair mentoring and intergenerational efforts, you get amazing results. And like I said in the last section, uh, people would have been shocked that the person who developed those tools was a 50-year-old female, you yeah. know, not a 22-year-old Asian. Right. And the reality is that we have so much to learn from and about each other mm -hmm. that you can do learning. And, and when you talk about peer mentoring, this whole concept of education being competitive has to end. Who cares if you got a 98 in the test and I got a 96 or I got a 76? Mm -hmm. As long as we both mastered what we needed to master, I think by help learning to help one another, not tutoring the smartest kid, tutoring the slowest kid in the class. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about two people of varying abilities being able to sit with each other and explain how they got to the answer they got to, mm -hmm. whether it's the right answer in the teacher's guide or not. I, I think on the workplace, that is happening more and more. You're having people at different levels, not just senior management, not just C-suite. You're having people at all levels really look at a problem. And I'm a little biased here. I think the place that gave birth to it on the work site at long ago was labor unions, you know, mm -hmm. where they would bring uh, management and the workers together. Who better to tell you what size hammer you need or what size screw you need than the person who's using it? Exactly. You know, you don't need to hire a consultant. Listen to your workers. And mm -hmm. now I think that more businesses outside of those that are uh, organized are starting to think about doing that, having these sessions where I want to understand how you think. I want to understand how you problem solve. I want to understand how you prioritize the problems in your business unit. That's happening more and more. And I think it's really healthy because what's happening is sometimes you see the person who you see as the lowest on that food chain, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's an intern or whether it's a front desk person or whether it's the person who answers the phone, 
come up with these amazing, insightful solutions. Mm -hmm. And it's just like a duh moment where you say, that person got that job because that was the job that was available when they applied and they needed a job and they wanted to work for this company. If we had both come in at the same time for the job I'm holding, that Mm -hmm. person may have out, you know, outplaced me. And I I think it's so important to recognize that because that's how trust begins. It's how mutual respect begins. And I think it's how businesses work better. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. One of the best lessons, I don't know if I said it earlier, but one of the best lessons I had in my PhD classes was that, well, first off, we're, we're built for relationships. So people learn from each other, which is why, you know, the old schoolhouse had had every age all together in there. Secondly, we learn by telling stories. Well, nonprofits do that really well because they're all about telling the story. We also know that it's as old as the biblical times, and it continues through all of these generations that we've been on this earth. If people pay attention to the basics, you know, you're you're able to do this. I've said this on several shows uh, previous, but my best lessons of how I've learned um, how to work with adults, and I've taught adults for, gosh, 15 years, is by working with my three-year-olds. The three-year-olds are the best teachers because they teach you about being kind. They teach you about, you know, listening. They, you know, if they're really upset and you want to be able to help them transition super smooth, I go, oh, let's go look at the bugs out the window. The little, you know, faces are wiping away their tears. They're looking for the bugs, but they transition super fast. I think that you can learn so much by watching young children as an adult, like, they're curious. They're, they're everything. They're delightful. They're about inclusion. They're happy to see you when you walk in the room. Don't you wish that like, think of like that three-year-old, I'm sure you've been around a few, you know, I know I have, and you walk in the door and they go, well, at least at Sunday school, Miss Isabella, you're here. And like, they run over and they hug you. It doesn't get better than that, honestly. Yeah, that's right. And I think we did. I think this like turning the flipping the model and having that three-year-old teach you, or in a business sense, having the front desk person teach you something yeah. is, is humbling. And yes. it's, it, it's, it really is, uh, I, I think, the way we've got to move forward, because everything is so interdimensional. There's no, the, the days of a single track job, think of, you know, you think Mm-mm. of something simple, like, not so simple, a nurse, right? A nurse used to have to do basic kinds of things maybe talk to a doctor, maybe, you know, maybe talk to families. Today, the nurse is the frontline professional. She has to, he or she has to know technology. They have to know the ever-changing world of pharmacology. They have to make sure they can talk to social workers and specialists. Uh, Their job has changed so much. And if, if people don't realize how that is just one example of how every job has gotten more complicated. Every job has gotten deeper, in my opinion, in terms of what people have to know. And it, if we don't understand that we are only going to be able to solve problems if we all put our heads together, I, I, there's no future for us, right? There's yeah. really no future because we are the difference between the best AI and a medium level human is problem solving. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And the creativity that we can bring to it. Yeah. That's right. Hmm. That's a problem. How are we going to fix that? Yeah. Yeah. And you had mentioned something earlier where, you know, schools and in the rural areas, they had like shoestring budget. That's truly where it's sad, but that's where we see the best innovation that comes out of it as well. How are we going to get this done? I know I've had to do that when I was a teacher in the classroom and that's how I still run the business. I go, how are we going to get this done? You know, you can't, money is important. I'm not saying it's not, Um, you have to have it, but it is also um, not always the solution when, you know, what is the most, truly the most important thing is what's in the person's head and what's in their heart. That's what changes and moves mountains. Well, and, you know, I mentioned our founder, Art Bilger, he always talks about purpose. And 
if you don't get purpose out of what you're doing mm -hmm. and you don't put purpose into what you're doing, mm -hmm. if you just are marking time at a job, you're not going to be very good at it. No. You know, you're going to be fine. Uh, and if you just do that marking time, you're not going to get anything out of it either. You're not going to see the, the power of that interdimensional, interpersonal learning kinds of things. The kinds of relationship building, Isabella, that you've been talking about during our whole conversation, I think that uh, that that call for purpose is one that's really important because yes, it is about making money. We all have to pay our bills and yes. young people have to pay their student loan debt. I mean, that's, that's a reality. And we want a comfortable lifestyle and we want some financial security. But if you're just doing something to make money, you're not going to last very long. Mm -mm. I call what you're, you're calling it interdimensional. I've written some articles about multidimensional learning because I see it the same way with you, different type of a name. But, you know, there's multiple dimensions to a person, your personality type, your skills, your abilities, how you process information, how you communicate. I mean, all of these different ways. And that's what makes us truly unique. Um, we need each other at the end of the day. Absolutely. We really do. We really do. So moving over here. Okay. And I know we're getting pretty close to the end, but what do you think about the workplace of the future? You know, I know it's, I know you talked about this on some of the shows that you've been on. So remote, we've been talking about the great resignation, but remote blended on site, flexible work. I think it's going to continue for a while. What are your thoughts? So first we have to get this darn virus under control. Yeah. I mean, people people feel like yo-yos. You know, I mean, we're closed, we're open, we're closed, we're open, indoor, outdoor, the whole nine yards. It, it's just been a terrible toll on everyone. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to take this lightly. The most, the most impacted people are those who have lost a loved one or who have a long-term uh, relationship with disease because of yeah. COVID. So for, let's get that out of the way. Let's make sure we, uh, I can't understand why there's discussion about that. This is a common enemy. This is not Republican or Democrat. It's not no. male or female. It's not black or white. We should all link arms and get rid of this, do everything we can to make this in the past, as far in the past, as soon as we can. So mm -hmm. after that happens, I think that the flexibility that we've seen is going to be very interesting to see where it rolls out. I, I am not somebody who thinks everybody's going to be working remotely. No. I think that remote work, just like remote learning, has been really productive for some and really limiting for others. Mm -hmm. Those people that we've been talking about that need human interaction don't get that from home. Mm -hmm. uh, is, some people aren't lucky enough to have a spacious home where both parents and both kids could learn and work from home at the same time. So they felt kind of claustrophobic during this. They've missed doing things. I mean, even those silly things like, you know, the commute. A lot of people really liked reading during the commute or listening to podcasts, you know what I mean? And they, they seem to have lost that. Other people really like remote work. So I think hybrid is something uh, that's here to stay. I, I think that everybody will have uh, a remote work plan and a remote work uh, learning plan in schools. Mm -hmm. So uh, DC just had a horrible snowstorm this week. So uh, some schools are closed and those schools that were able to really adapt to uh, online learning are online and they're not missing a school day. Mm -hmm. So yeah, now, no uh, day now. Not, again, I don't want to get into the quality of that. I don't have any idea because I'm not teaching and I don't have children in school right now. So I think the I think the hybrid model is here to stay. I am concerned that the people that I keep talking about, you know, those people that answer the phones, the front desk people, when you could see them working, you would see their grit, their determination, their in, you know, their their ability to spin gold out of straw you could see it and because of that you would say you know Isabel you did all the prep work for me on this meeting why don't you come to the meeting with me mm -hmm. that's not likely to happen 
when you're working remotely. It's less likely that I'm going to see your work ethic and your abilities that weren't on your resume. And -hmm. it's also less likely that at the last minute, I'm going to say, come on this Zoom, because I have to worry about getting you the information. And God knows we've all had enough problems with getting the right login information. So I, I, I do worry about that. And I do think disproportionately that people who have benefited from that oh my god you're great moment on the work site are women and people of color Mm -hmm. so i have to say that that's a concern for me that if people can't see how amazing they are they're not going to push them forward and accelerate their mobility through the company Mm -hmm. uh, or the the workplace whatever it is or the school because you and i both know we worked in schools if if we were working remotely we wouldn't have seen how creative somebody was we wouldn't have seen what great classroom managers they were we wouldn't have seen any of that and I think we would have lost a lot of the benefit of knowing who the really amazing teachers were. Yeah. You can put some of that on social feeds, but you don't catch it honestly the same way because, well, first off, they're minors. You can't go and show pictures of them unless everybody signs off on it. And there's just so many restrictions. Whereas in the school, everybody would know there'd be an announcement. Okay. You know, we want to recognize over here, Jane, because she did this in the classroom and she brought all of the students and they did this. And, you know, like there was, there was this whole pep rally and to go back to something else about higher ed, when you said, yes, I was in a sorority. Yes. I feel like, yes, those, those top tier schools will be there. People will value going to school because it is, it is a social experience. It is definitely where you learn more about yourself. You're interacting with people you can't do that online. I have taught online in higher ed and it is not that great, honestly, because you know, the requirements, okay, everybody turn on your cameras. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. You can make it required. You can lose points if you don't, but you know, it's hard. It's just hard. It's hard. Best mentoring advice that you want to share with our listeners. I think, uh, there are different types of mentoring. And I think you need to be really clear on what type of mentoring you sign up for, whether Mm -hmm. you're the mentee or the mentor. Mm -hmm. Um, Some uh, professional mentorships are, should have firewalls around them. They should have rules and regulations. So uh, I'm the COO of a company and you're a student in, in the college. Are you allowed to ask me for a job or is that is that not allowed? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the kinds of questions? And I think for you know that kind of thing, I I, I did for a while uh, in the private sector, uh, four years of my life that often gets forgotten, uh, run corporate social responsibility and do that. And it was very it was very important for both the mentor and the student at, at that time, a college student, that they know what the rules were because they knew then how to frame it. And I think not quite a curriculum, but there should be at least a scaffold of the things you want to cover in a professional mentoring relationship. So do you want to talk about resumes? Do you want to talk about who should be your recommendations? Do you want to talk about, you know, what the workplace is like in my industry? So you can see if you fit in, do you want to talk about corporate culture? I mean, but that should be decided, I think ahead of time, number one, so that everybody knows the rules most importantly, but number two, so that everybody who's being mentored within that umbrella of a program have a similar experience, never going to be exactly the same and it shouldn't. Now, when you talk about non-professional mentoring, when you talk about things like Boys and Girls Club, when you talk about things, uh, you know, like Big Brother, Big Sister, or Junior League, you know, I think all of those things uh, need the same kinds of parameters, like what's allowable and what's not, particularly if you're mentoring kids in your, in your world, in middle school, so that you don't get uncomfortable questions and the mentor doesn't go running from the room or the mentor doesn't say things that the the mentee or the mentee's parents might think are inappropriate. So I think having that balance, but I think the the non-professional one can be more friendly, can include things like going to a ball game, you know, can in, include things like just talking about 
how how activities could really help in your schoolwork. Like, yeah, if you like baseball, that's great. Start keeping the stats, and you're going to improve your math scores. No, you know, yeah. all of those things. But I, I, so I guess I guess I'm a rule follower. I, I I think that any kind of mentoring should have some parameters, should have an end goal, should have an end date. You know, I think that's really important that it doesn't go on forever. Mm-hmm. You know, but there's enough flexibility so that if you want to do four 15 minute sessions a week or one one hour session a week that's your that's flexibility you know that's the ability of you and the two of you to decide what's mm-hmm. best what works best for you but i i do i think that these mentoring relationships that are kind of i don't know loosey goosey uh don't they they don't know why they're mentoring they don't know what the outcome is i mean Obviously, a caring adult is always important for young people, but how do you show that you care about them? How do you demonstrate that should be defined? Mm-hmm. Yep, I agree. Well, we are at the end of the show. So how can our listeners contact you? Ah, easy. Uh, Jay Notes at Working Nation. And please look at our website, workingnation.com. Uh, we do the storytelling that you've been talking about, Isabella. And I think, as I said, uh, the staff, the amazing professionals at Working Nation did work in big industry uh, with ABC and NBC and ESPN. They know how to tell a story beautifully. They know how to get the point across. And uh, I hope you'll enjoy it. And and give us your feedback. Are there things we're not doing? We'd love to hear from your listeners if there are topics we're not covering or uh, topics we're not covering well. Yeah, thank you. Well, here, I want to make sure I'm acknowledging our sponsor, Cat5 Studios. Thank you to the production team, our video interns, Chase McDowell, David Ullman, and Keisha Perez. Music by Sophie Lloyd, Charles Fleming, Elijah Sutton, Dave Francis, and Diego Leal. Sound effects, Eric Peterson, Matt Miller, Miguel Sintra, and Dave Francis. Visit employers for the number four change at www.e4c.tech to learn how you can create a real diverse and inclusive culture while skilling your people for the future. Thank you so much for being a guest, Jane. I have just been- It was a pleasure, Isabella. Thank you. Oh my goodness.